Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. Uh, today, I'm talking with Kristen Goss, who is the author of The Paradox of Gender Equality, How American Women's Groups Gained and Lost Their Public Voice. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed the book a lot. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been, any of the important highlights of your, uh, of your academic career. Sure. So I'm an associate professor at Duke University in our Stanford School of Public Policy. So I'm an American uh, politics person with an emphasis on policy and uh, a recovering newspaper reporter. And uh, I should say that this this book uh, took a really long time, and I'm really really glad that you're uh, you're featuring it. It's really an honor to be on your program today. Yeah, yeah. The the length of time that it took to write, I think, shows up in the how interesting and, and um, uh, uh, nuanced your take is on, on the, what is really a big subject. You didn't pull off just a little project. This is, a, in many ways, a big big project, which we'll get to. Um, but I want to start with some of the little things. Um, you start the book with such an interesting contrast in how women's groups participated in public policy in a couple of different time periods. I wonder if you could recount a bit of um, that the anecdote that you begin the book about the, the role that women's groups played during the 1940s post-war reconstruction debate, and how you compare that to more recent foreign affairs debates. Sure. So just by way of background for people who haven't read the book, what I look at is how U.S. uh, women's organizations' uh, policy agendas have changed over a period of more than 100 years, from the late 19th century through the year 2000. So how their policy interests have evolved and how, uh, in, in parallel to that, their presence on Capitol Hill has evolved. And so I begin uh, the book with an anecdote about um, the Marshall Plan, the post-war reconstruction plan for Europe. And so this is 1947. Uh, Congress is holding hearings on the Truman administration's proposal. And uh, what you see is still uh, to testify, um, and this is in early 1948, I guess, is, is when the hearings are happening, uh, in favor of this uh, landmark, what's going to be landmark legislation, and which is going to lay the groundwork for sort of our modern foreign aid program. And the kinds of groups that are up there are um, uh, sort of middle class groups, women's clubs, labor union women, uh, peace activists, um, different ethnic uh, women, Jewish women, for example, elite women. You've got a real cross section um, of the female population. And uh, they are, uh, you know, sort of sounding these very broad-minded, civic-minded themes of U.S. national interests and our place in the transcripts of these hearings. You're seeing that women are really trying to represent what they see as the sort of broader American public interest. And I flash forward to the early 1990s when um, Congress was considering another landmark foreign aid bill. Um, This one was called the Foreign Heirs Foreign Affairs Reform and Reconstruction Act, um, which was basically fundamentally um, reforming our numerous bureaucracies that deliver uh, foreign aid and foreign assistance. 
this is another law that's considered by expert policy experts to have been a very, very important uh, law. There were hearings held, and women's groups were just absent. Um, where they were testifying in the sort of foreign affairs field was on things like human trafficking, which has to do, obviously, with human rights, women's rights, women's protection, uh, and on discrimination in the foreign service and, and those kinds of things. Um, so I, I looked at this as kind of emblematic of the larger theme of the book, which is how women's groups went from being, you know, very broad-minded, having huge policy agendas that didn't necessarily – always have anything to do with women's particular interests in combating discrimination, for example, um, to, um, a fair, to a narrower but obviously quite important set of um, policy interests that are really oriented around women's rights, women's status, women's well-being. Um, and the types of groups changed. So these big, huge mass membership organizations that were showing up at mid-century and were actually carrying a huge amount of water for the female community, you know, throughout the 20th century had really disappeared um, from the stage. Uh, feminist groups that were smaller, that maybe even didn't have members, and that had a very specific policy agenda oriented around rights and status. So um, that, that essentially, that anecdote essentially captures the major argument of the book, and I show that uh, this happened across policy realms, not just in foreign policy. Right, and so, so we're talking about a, a period of great, of great change. And much of the literature on women's groups is dominated by this wave theory that you, you talk about. Um, you all offer an alternative metaphor to try to understand this change over time. I wonder if you could first just, you know, introduce this, the idea of the wave theory and what some of its limitations are and, and what you do to offer in, in response to this. You offer a, a, a different way, a different um, metaphor to understand what's happened over this time period. Sure. So if you study... Um, American women or women's history or women in politics, um, or even if you're just uh, somebody who's maybe been an activist or knows something about women, uh, women's participation, you probably have heard wave. Um, and the, the idea is that, um, that, you know, most of the exciting stuff, most of women's, the, the excitement around women's collective action has happened in these three periods of time. So the first wave, conventionally refers to the the period of women's organizing around female suffrage. So this period would be, you know, roughly constitutional amendment uh, guaranteeing women the right to vote was, was ratified. So that's the first wave, really dominated by suffrage. Then the second wave is one that probably a lot more people have heard, uh, heard of or heard the term, um, conventionally refers to the women's liberation slash women's rights movement that really took off in the mid-1960s, and carried through the 1970s. And, you know, this was the age of Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine and the apocryphal bra burning, which may not have actually happened, uh, but a huge uh, um, organizing effort on, on behalf of, of women to secure um, a whole raft of policies that would ensure um, equal treatment under the law um, and that would also change social norms around gender roles. Uh, there's some people argue that there's been a third wave, um, and one thing is clear about the third wave is that it's been much less policy oriented um, than the first two. Um, the third wave is, um, depending on the definition, tends to be uh, oriented more around um, expression, sexual expression, the idea that you know it, that that women that being female is not the only thing that constitutes a lot of women that there are also, you know, African-American women and lesbians and that there are multiple identities that shape our experience as women. 
um, any of you know that any of these waves were tremendously important. Obviously, there was a huge amount of organizing around suffrage. Um, it was a monumental effort. It took decades. You know, women were tortured in, 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 over you know demanding their right to vote. It was an incredible struggle, and obviously delivered. In, 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 fantastically important policy victory. Uh, ditto for the second wave movement. Um, you know, when my aunt got divorced in the mid-70s, she couldn't get a credit card in her own name. Um, there were, you know, there were huge areas of sort of discrimination that were embedded in our laws, and the feminist movement did um, an, an amazing job, you know, sort of eliminating those areas of unequal treatment and, and in passing or encouraging the passage of other laws that really allow women to sort of fully flourish in their personal and their professional lives. So um, the waves are important, um, absolutely important. I think what the wave metaphor misses, though, is that you, you think, okay, a wave rises and crests, and then it crashes. So what the wave metaphor suggests is that after these great victories were achieved, you know, women just sort of, went home and, and stopped engaging. And what I find is exactly the opposite, at least for the period after suffrage. Um, so the, con- the early conventional view of suffrage was that it took all this deliberate suffrage, just sort of collapsed and had, had trouble sort of focusing and individual women themselves really didn't take advantage of the vote to the extent that it had been hoped. And, um, and you know, the, this, this kind of retreat from public life continued sort of reaching its it's nadir in the 1950s, which we think of as an era of Betty Crocker and June Cleaver and women just taking care of their families and, uh, and not being politically engaged. And, and, you know, so, so the wave metaphor, the wave story suggests that, um, you know, there wasn't really much happening after the wave crashed in 1920. And, and what I'm able to show is that exactly the opposite is true. Women's organizations broadened their policy agendas. They got involved in all sorts of issues that we don't conventionally think of as gendered issues. For example, foreign policy and um, uh, consumer issues and defense issues, um, just issues across the board, transportation, agriculture, you name it, they were involved. And um, so when you look at one of the measures I use for women's policy engagement is how many uh, how often women's groups were testifying on Capitol Hill um, at, you know, sort of legislative policymaking hearings. And what I find is that, you know, adjusted for the number of hearings that Congress was holding, the, the, the high point came in mid-century, came in the late 40s and then kind of leveled off in the 50s. So this period when women were supposedly at home baking cakes, uh, were, um, in fact, what they were doing was organizing in these big membership groups and marching up to Capitol Hill and, you know, exercising their voice on a whole range of policy issues, only some of which had to do with women's rights or women's status or women's well-being. So, um, so, so that's the story of mid-century. And, and then the second wave, um, there is a little bit of truth to the crashing. Um, so you see this kind of uptick during the, the 60s and 70s, mainly the 70s, uh, in kind of women's organizations. There are lots of new groups are forming. There are sort of taking on a huge array of sort of policy issues, looking for discrimination or unequal treatment and challenging that. So you see this increase in, you know, women's organizations uh, up on Capitol Hill and in, in the number of issues that they're looking at, the number of hearings they're testifying at, the number of groups that are forming. Um, but then it just crashes, um, starting in, look at kind of women's organizations and their, their policy presence um, by the year 2000, which is where my data set ends, you know, women's groups are testifying at about the same rate in the year 2000 
in that Congress than they were in, you know, the 19 teens or 1910, even though women as a group have a huge amount more political resources and civic capacities than they did, obviously, in the era before they could even vote in most places. Um, so that's, that's the, you know, so I, I sort of challenge this idea that, you know, you, that, that the only the only interesting stuff that's happening with women is happening during these great movements. That's not true. Um, there's, it's, it's totally possible for, you know, movements to birth a whole, you know, array of, you know, new organizations and new policy agendas and so forth that, that carry forward long past the, the point where we think the movement has kind of subsided. Right. One of the terms that you use in the book um, that I think helps you sort of guide you through the book is this idea of women's civic place. Uh, what does this term mean in the context of your book? Of your book? What, is, what, is that, what does that idea of women's civic place allow you to do in exploring this um, long time period uh, that you examine? Yeah, I had, I had to sort of uh, think of a way to conceptualize the role that women's groups were playing in in these different um, policy realms, and so civic place was a term that just kept coming to mind. And essentially, it is a it's a it's a catch-all um, term to embody this idea of what kinds of issues uh, women. Uh, Kind of had a legitimate had legitimate policy authority over, and the way in which they sort of claimed that authority, the way they framed their their um, their right to speak and to be heard and taken seriously on these different issues, and um, the this this idea of sort of what the issues were and how women were kind of embracing them, it turns out is really tied up in the types of groups also that are um, that are doing this kind of advocacy around these issues. And so um, perhaps it's easier if I just talk about the sort of different ways that women's groups and how that has evolved over time, uh, because that was sort of a subpart um, that was sort of running parallel to the the evolution of types of groups and running parallel to the evolution of the types of issues that were being considered. Mm-hmm. Um, so... so um, in the in the early 19th century, essentially, where where most of my data sort of really start um, picking up, you saw a lot of um, a lot of women's organizations um, uh, sort of laying claim to the sort of maternal identity. So, and and this and I am not the first to say the least to sort of recognize this. A lot of historians have written about it, but. Um, women's organizations would play off of this widely respected and widely understood role for women as caretakers, caretakers of the family, um, to and, and leverage that to make the argument that essentially because women have this particular set of experiences or aptitudes uh, that, you know, with respect to children and the family, that they could translate those skills and those aptitudes and those um, uh, and that set of knowledge to the, to the broader community and, and to the nation as a whole. So um, there are a number of terms that this has gone by, uh, you know, different scholars have had different ideas. There's municipal housekeeping is one that you hear a lot. Um, and so 
uh, the, the sort of maternalist rhetoric is one way that, you know, because many, many women become mothers, um, or they, they perform maternalism in, you know, in their families, whether they have biological children or not. Um, so it was a common experience that had obviously high emotional content, and it, and it was something that was very easy to organize women around. And what I found is that the, the, you know, the, the civic place that's oriented around prominent in the, in the early century and really up through, um, the mid-century and even into the 1960s. I mean, a lot of people thought the maternalist stuff sort of fell off the map, um, in the er- earlier than it did. I mean, but it was actually quite, quite a prominent, um, uh, collective action framework. So a second one that people are familiar with is this sort of egalitarian equality framework. So you can think of it as a shorthand, the feminist framework, right? That, that, you know, women are, uh, they're not different from men in the sense of, you know, being mothers or caregivers, but instead they're equal citizens and, um, that they are deserving of equal treatment, deserving of equal rights. They should not be treated as different, um, that we should, uh, that we should not be focusing on sort of, um, biological differences as having any sort of broader political relevance. Um, so the egalitarian theme, I mean, that's something that's played throughout, both of these themes have played throughout our history. I mean, they were both involved in the suffrage movement. Um, they both were involved in, to some extent, in the second wave feminist movement. So these are kind of competing frameworks that, um, that have been used selectively by different kinds of groups over time. And what you see is the egalitarian framework really um, rising a lot, um, you know, in the, in, particularly in the post-1970s um, environment. There was this third idea of civic place, um, which I called, I had I, I different words for it, but you can think of it as kind of the civic rationale or the super-citizen rationale. And this was this interesting combination of the two. So it it suddenly picked up on this idea or tapped into this wide, widespread understanding that women are, um, you know, more virtuous than men, that women have this, you know, concern for the community, and um, but without really stating it, without really um, uh, you know appealing to traditional gender roles explicitly, they tapped into this understanding and invoked it. Um, but at the same time, they sort of the, the the groups that used this kind of civic rationale were really um, were really careful not to um, not to claim kind of equality arguments either. I mean, it was sort of, it was sort of uh, understood that women had a, every right to speak on whatever issue men were speaking on. Um, and so it was kind of this interesting sort of hybrid of, you know, uh, of, of, without making a feminist argument and claiming civic virtue without making a maternalist argument, but combining them um in, in this kind of civic rationale. And that was really, really common after suffrage and really through mid-century. So groups like the League of Women Voters um, really invoked, which was the, the, the most prominent group in my data by women's groups over time. So um, they were a very important group, and they and they were really careful not to invoke sort of gendered rationales, but they played on kind of widespread gender understanding. Um, so that that was sort of the understanding of, or the 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 notion of civic place was, was, you know, what is, what is women's royalties and on what basis are they able to claim that authority? I wonder, um, and there's a lot of very interesting, um, empirical findings in the book, but I wonder if you could talk about a couple of them in the context of your role, not just as a scholar, but someone who's also involved in the operations of a women's group. And so, um, you're not just um, studying this, you're also doing this. 
in in your in the other side of your your daily life. So I wonder if you could, um, in sort of in thinking about what to take away from this book, put on your hat as a, uh, a women's organi- organization leader, um, and and what you could draw from the conclusions um, and the findings uh, for the operations of women's groups um, across the country. Those that are uh, like the ones that you're involved with, and those that maybe are a little bit different than the ones that you're involved with, you know, both for operations today, but also looking into the future? That's a great question. So I joined my local League of Women Voters organization in Arlington, Virginia, which is actually my home, uh, in 2004, because I wanted to understand what these groups were really like on the inside, and I, I knew at that point the League was going to be important in my study. And um, I was immediately put on the board. Um, people looked, I think I was at that point, um, let's see, 2004, so I was in my late 30s, um, but I was treated like I, you know, they had never seen anyone that young, and, and I love the league, and I'm still on the board. In fact, I'm president. So nine years later, I, you know, I, I joined for one reason, and I and I have grown to um, love my work there, and, and, and I'm staying on for a very different set of reasons, which is I passionately believe in the, in the mission of these kinds of very civic-minded, good government groups um, that historically have been um, the province of females. Uh, one of the challenges that we have faced um, at the local league, at our particular local league, and not all local leagues have this problem, but, but it's, a, it's a common problem among all sorts of women's organizations, whether they're old-time traditional groups or newer feminist groups, um, is trying to figure out how to appeal to a new generation of women with a, um, with a gendered collective action frame. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, why should young women feel like they need to join a women's group in order to have their voice heard? And, um, I, you know, I teach young women, obviously, as a, as a college professor, and this is the question that I get the most often from them. And it's an issue that we in Arlington have really struggled with, um, and, and we are by no means the only women's group. I mean, they're all struggling with this question. I hear from women's group leaders from across the spectrum about, about uh, you know, younger women. So I think that the... One of the, the challenges that, that I struggled with as I was writing the last chapter of the book is, you know, whether gender is actually an obsolete, uh, you know, identity um, as a basis for I'm actually doing some work now with a young woman who's a, a grad student here at Duke um, looking at um, kind of attitudes among younger women toward um, their identity as women um, and and toward women's groups and whether there needs to be, you know, uh, whether there needs to be a role for women's collective action, either in representing women's views or in uh, highlighting issues that, you know, may not otherwise be on the agenda, which is one of the roles that women's groups have played traditionally, which is advocating on behalf of general public goods, which are hard to organize around, or marginalized. The the literature that I looked at when I wrote the book um, was really uh, all over the map on what was going on with younger women and whether they had a sense of gender identity and whether that was translatable into um, joining a women's group or doing something collectively as women in, in the policy realm. And um, you, you asked me what I learned from this book. I learned that that is the most important question, and I don't have an answer to it. So we're hoping with this new work that we'll get a better handle on, you know, the, the women who are, you know, who are coming of age, in, who came of age in the 90s. I mean, I came of age in the 70s. I want to, I want to understand women who came of age in the 90s and are coming of age now um, and, and how they see gender um, as a, you know, as a political construct. Now you've you've alluded a little bit to what's coming up next from you, but are is there a is there a new book in this new project, or is there another book that you're 
uh, uh, reaching conclusions on that we'll be able to look forward to in the future. What's on your What's on your agenda for the next uh, year or so? Area of interest um, is, or among many other areas of interest, I have two. Uh, one is gun politics. Uh, my first book was on the politics of gun control, and actually this women's book grew out of that. Um, I was looking at why it was so hard to organize a gun control movement in America, given the number of uh, high-profile shootings that we have and regular crime waves and so forth. And I was knowing something about history, thinking, where's where are the women in all this? I mean, if, if these shootings, these high school shootings were happening in the 1920s, women's groups would have been leading the charge. And that's how I got into this women's book. So I'm actually going to, um, I'm, I'm working on a book about gun politics in the wake of Sandy Hook. Um, and focusing, you know, in large part on the sort of pro-gun control, we don't use that term anymore, but uh, gun reform movement. And, and in particular, the role of this new maternalism. Um, there is a new group of moms that has formed on Facebook, and they um, have a grassroots presence, face-to-face presence around the country. And they are doing a lot of work to sort of challenge the the gun lobby and, and assumptions about the role of guns in democracy. So that's the next project that's going to, I think, bring together guns and women, uh, which are my two strange interests. Yeah, well, I look forward to it. Uh, until then, the, the current book, The Paradox of Gender Equality, How American Women's Groups Gained and Lost Their Public Voice, is available from University of Michigan Press. Kristen, thank you very much for your, te- your time today. Thank you, Heath.